Thank you for joining us. Remember, you can watch our services live and view our archive at StevensCreekChurch.com, the Stevens Creek app, or on our Roku channel. And if our ministries have touched your life, we'd love to hear about it. Send us an email to mystory@stevenscreekchurch.com. We hope today's message encourages and inspires you. Enjoy the message. What's up, Stevens Creek Church? How are you guys doing? All right. It's good to see you in the middle of the apocalypse of 2020. It's looking so well. It's good to be back home. And this is truly, truly our family's church home. And uh, yeah, it's just great to be back. We've, we've been in, in Texas, like Sarah said, for the last couple of years, working with a great ministry called Marriage Today, uh, getting to, to create content and events and resources to help people build their marriage and family and their faith in Christ at the same time. And it's a joy to do that and to serve alongside my wonderful wife, Ashley. And, and our kids have been growing up these last couple of years. You've been asking about them. I found a recent picture from summer in Texas. Here's Ashley and the boys uh, looking so cute. That was one day where, you know, Ashley's had cool projects for them going on. They found like a build your own tie-dye t-shirt kit on Amazon and made that. And so it was a fun day in Texas, but I don't recommend visiting Texas in the summer. And here's why. Here's a picture of my car thermometer from last week. Can you see the top of that? That's from my car. It says 117 degrees, which was the heat index that day. That's too hot. Even the devil won't come to Texas in the summer. That's why the devil went down to Georgia. Like he passed through Texas and he was like, this is even too hot for me. I got to find a fiddle player in Georgia. It's a little less hot. But Texas is great. Just don't come in the summer. But uh, we are so glad to be back in Georgia. Speaking of being back in Georgia, quick family announcement before I dive into the sermon. And that is, over the last couple years, we've um, totally felt called to the work we're doing, building stronger marriages with Marriage Today, an amazing ministry. Uh, But at the same time, the whole time we've been gone, we've just also felt called to be physically here in Augusta because we just feel like this is home for us. This church is our church home. Our kids, you know, they're rooted here. This is just where our family's at our best. And so we lived in that tension for the last couple of years of feeling like, God, how do we do both of those callings? You know, how do we do both those things? And over the last few months, we've just been praying really hard, you know, praying for an opportunity to do both. And then recently, we talked to the leadership at Marriage Today and just shared our hearts with them about how we want to continue working with them long term, but um, would love the opportunity to do it remotely where we could be in Georgia, travel into Texas when we need to, but for this to be home base. And they actually gave us the green light to be able to do that. So our family is moving back to Augusta, and we are pumped, excited to be back. So you're going to get 
You're gonna get tired of seeing us around. We're gonna be around so much, but we're, we're thrilled. So thanks for all the love and support, both from a distance and now um, up close in person. We just, we, we love you guys and this is our home and can't wait to, to do life here again. All right, well, diving into the sermon, I was thinking about the topic today and, and a story came to my mind that I realized like I'd never told. And I'm like, that story actually kind of fits with, with how, how I'm starting the sermon. So here's the story. When I was seven years old, I was part of what's called Royal Rangers. It's sort of like a Christian Cub Scouts at my church. And one day, the Royal Rangers crew was going out on a field trip, and I was about seven, and we were riding in the car with the other seven-year-old boys, and our group leader, his name was Ted, and we were going to meet the rest of the Royal Rangers at this campsite or whatever it was we were going to. Well, at the time, when I was seven, it was like the mid-1980s, and there was this ad campaign on TV all the time saying, don't drink and drive, right? It's, it, it was a scary commercial. It showed a lot of wrecks and stuff. And it said, if you drink and drive, you could die. Everyone in your car could die. So if you drink, don't drive. If you drive, don't drink. Now, as a seven-year-old, I thought they were talking about just drinking any liquid because it didn't specify that they were talking about alcohol. I didn't know what alcohol was. I just thought, well, drinking is okay. Water, Sprite, you know, milk. Driving is okay. But for some reason, if you do those two things at the same time, it becomes deadly. That was the mindset that I had. Now, fast forward to our field trip with the Royal Rangers. I'm sitting in the van and Ted, our leader, starts driving and he pulls out a can of Sprite and he cracks it open and I'm like, don't do it, don't do it. And he starts drinking while driving. And I'm freaking out. I'm like, we're gonna die. Like I've seen the commercials. I know what's gonna, we're gonna die. And I start telling the other kids, don't freak out. I think we're all gonna die. What? Have you not seen the commercials? If you drink and you drive, everybody in your car dies. Ted is drinking and he's driving. And so the kids are like crying. He's like, what's wrong with you guys? Nothing, nothing. We finally get there, pour, pour, out, pour out of the car and I like run from the van. And, and I find the guy who's like over all of the Royal Rangers. And I'm like, sir, um, something terrible's happened. I think Ted might need to be arrested. He's like, Ted? What did Ted do? I'm like, Ted was drinking and driving the whole way. Ted was drinking and driving? Yes, sir, with all of us in the van. I know it's dangerous. I know it's against the law. I've seen the commercials. He goes, Ted was drinking and driving. He, I said, he wasn't even trying to hide it. He was doing it the whole way. It's a miracle any of us are alive. And the, the leader's like real, noticeably alarmed. And he said, I, I'm just really shocked. Um, Ted, I, well, maybe we need to call the police. He said, but first, walk me through exactly what happened. And I said, okay, well, we got in the van start driving. While driving, Ted opens a can of Sprite. And he said, wait, did you say Sprite? Yes, sir. He might've had a couple of them. I don't know, but it was definitely Sprite. <laughs> and he was driving and he was drinking. And the commercial said, don't drink and drive. And the guy kind of chuckled and he said, well, David, it's really, it's good that you told me this. He said, but, and, and that law, that rule is a really important one and it saves lives and drinking and driving kills people. But they're talking about a very specific kind of drinking. I said, well, the commercial just said drinking. And I know what drinking is. It's any liquid. He said, I know. Technically, you're right. But it's referring, trust me, to a very specific kind. And Sprite is okay. I said, the commercial didn't say Sprite's okay. And he said, I know. And it's, it's good that you noticed this. But you've got to trust me that, that, you're, that the application of that rule here is, is you're doing it in too broad a sense. 
And what Ted was doing was actually okay. And, and then I you know, learned later that, oh, okay, that Sprite is fine. So you're like, what does it have to do with anything? Here's the deal. In the Bible, over and over, God gives us these rules, these principles, these laws by which we're called to build our life around. But when Jesus comes on the scene and he starts teaching about these rules and these laws, we see that over and over through history and, and the people that Jesus was teaching had misapplied these laws. Sometimes they made the mistake I made where they apply the law in too broad a sense and in doing that, they miss the point of the law. This is something the Pharisees did with the law of honoring the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day is a, is a day of rest and worship to reconnect with family and to reconnect with God. It's a gift to us. But the Pharisees were a group of people in Jesus' day that applied that law so broadly that they made it this legalistic, rigid prison where nobody could do anything. You couldn't even breathe legally on the Sabbath day, and they'd miss the point by applying it too broadly. Other times, people take a law and they apply it in too narrow a sense. Like the rule we're going, the law we're going to look at today. Someone asked Jesus, Jesus, what's the most important commandment? And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's most important. The second most important commandment's like the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the most important things you can do in life. That's the essence of what it means to follow me. Love God, love your neighbor. And the guy that asked Jesus the question said, well, who's my neighbor? And the guy that asked the question, along with everyone in the audience, thought they already knew the answer to that question. They'd applied this law, though, in too narrow a sense. Because of their understanding, your neighbor was just somebody who looks like you. Someone of the same race as you. Someone who worships the same as you and, and lives next door to you and probably thinks like you and votes like you and has the same, same basic life as you. So they thought your neighbor was essentially just saying, you know, people just like you. But Jesus wanted them to know and he wants us to know that loving your neighbor, you're one of the most important things we can do in life. One of the essences of the Christian faith is so much broader than just the person who physically lives next door to you. It's so much broader than that. It's so much more diverse than that. And we're gonna dive into a story that Jesus uses to begin to teach this person and this crowd and us 2,000 years later what a neighbor's really meant to be. If you're following along with the notes though, one principle that is a fill in the blank you can write down before we even get into the story, it's about serving. Loving your neighbor is really it's a call to serve others. And you're never more like Jesus than when you're serving others. And we'll talk more about that as we go. But diving into the question of the day, who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, I love how Jesus answers questions with stories because he knows we learn through stories. Jesus replied to that question with this story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, left him half dead beside the road. Now, by chance, a priest was coming down that same road, walked by, saw the man laying there, and he passed by on the other side. Then a temple assistant walked over, looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. But then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If the bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, 
Which of those three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits, Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. Now for a Samaritan to be the hero of the story, like that doesn't really mean anything to us, it's just a story, but that story would have been scandalous to the audience Jesus was teaching because the, the entirely Jewish audience Jesus was teaching at that particular context had been raised within a culture that had taught them that part of loving their own culture and heritage meant to be exclusive with that love and to be very distrusting and, and even prejudiced against anybody who was other than them, especially the Samaritans. Because in the other side of their border was Samaria, and the people who lived in Samaria, well, they weren't Jewish. They were a different race, and they were a different belief system, and everything about them was different. And so they were raised to believe, those Samaritans are not your neighbors. Those Samaritans are not your people. You stay away from them, and you focus on your own people, people who are like you, not like them. It's us and them, and we don't go near them. And Jesus is saying, you've got to break out of that mindset, because God has created all people in his image. And every person of every race and of every tribe, they're all created by God with a sacred dignity. They're image bearers of God. And later, the church that was created in Jesus' name, and you can look this up historically, and it's true, the Church of Jesus Christ is the first organization in the history of humankind that was intentionally diverse and intentionally inclusive, intentionally had the vision that you can see in the book of Revelation that it would include every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And up until that time, things were so segmented. Here, even 2,000 years later, we're still dealing with this, this original sin of racism that, that is just something that humankind has struggled to overcome since the dawn. And this isn't a new, a new issue. Jesus was talking 2,000 years ago to, to a group of people who were deeply embedded in ideologies that, that were very prejudiced against other races. And Jesus had to teach them, no, you're missing the point. The blood in your veins that Ancestry.com says makes you related isn't what connects you. It's my blood shed for you on the cross that unites all humankind into one family by faith in me, in God's family. Every, everyone is sacred, and I want all tribes, all tongues, all people in my family, and you've got to see them as your brothers, as your sisters, and as your neighbors. That story doesn't seem radical, and we read it. You know, we name churches and hospitals and charities the Good Samaritan, but even that word Samaritan was a word that, a Jewish person wouldn't even speak at the time. Even when this guy, Jesus asked him, which one of these three guys showed him mercy? Even his answer wasn't the Samaritan. He had to say it in a different way. I guess it was the one who showed him mercy. Jesus is challenging them and he's challenging us of who we view as our neighbor and how we serve the neighbors around us. Because being a good neighbor is, it's so much more than just being nice to the person who lives next to you. It's about being present, it's about serving. I think part of why we miss some of this concept on being a good neighbor is in, in our modern context, we've got this high value placed on just minding your own business and, and being you know, kind of private and letting other people be private. So used to, when you talk about a good neighbor, you'd say, oh man, She's such a good neighbor, he's such a good neighbor, they're there for you. Every time they need you, man, they're, they're, they're the first one to show up.
But now, when you talk about a good neighbor, it's kind of the opposite. They're like, he's the best neighbor I ever had. I've only seen him twice in 10 years. Stays to himself, keeps his yard mowed, doesn't even know my name, best neighbor I ever had. And I'm even kind of guilty of this sometimes. Like, have you ever found yourself in a neighborhood where you're gonna like go check the mail, but you look out the window first, like, oh, I hope the neighbors aren't out there. I don't wanna get caught talking. There are neighbors out there, that's, there's always that one neighbor in their yard like all the time, just all the time, just waiting to talk to somebody. I've gotta wait for him to go in the house so I can go get my mail because I don't wanna get caught talking. Like, I've, I've, I've been that, that bad neighbor, I guess. So when Jesus is talking about being a good neighbor, he's not saying avoid people and stay away from other people. No, he's saying you gotta be involved. I'm calling you to community. I'm calling you to relationships. I'm calling you to serve one another. And when you see someone hurting, specifically when you see someone hurting, recognize that's my neighbor and I need to help. I was driving a rental car recently and the check engine light was on the whole time I was driving it. And then I looked up in the little sticker, the oil change sticker in the window of the windshield of the rental car, and I realized it was way overdue for an oil change. And I thought, well, that's gotta be the problem. And right at the same time, I drove by a Jiffy Lube oil change place that was open. And I'm like, well, the Jiffy Lube's open. So you know what I did? Nothing, it's not my car. I don't care about changing the oil, it's a rental car. <laughs> Who would change the oil in a rental car? I just kept driving. It's whoever owns the car's problem. Now, not changing the oil in a rental car is fine. I mean, I don't expect you to. But I think sometimes we take that rental car mentality and apply it to human beings. We see somebody else hurting, we see somebody else suffering, and what do we say? Well, it's not my problem. I mean, it's their family's problem, it's the government's problem, it's their neighbor's problem, but they're not my problem. I got my own problems, and and I don't have time for their problems. And Jesus is saying, no, you're my hands and feet in this world. And I want you to see that, that, yeah, you can't change the whole world by yourself, but every day I'm gonna put opportunities in your path to help somebody. You can't do it all, but you can do something. I think we can watch the news and feel so overwhelmed by all the brokenness in the world that we think, problems are so big, I can't do anything, so I'm just not gonna do anything. And it, it keeps us paralyzed from just doing what we can. And yeah, maybe you can't, cure the world's problem by yourself, but you can help one person. You can babysit every now and then for that single mom on your street that desperately needs a break. You can go to the Dream Center once or twice a month and fold some clothes or serve some meals to somebody that that needs it. You know, you can't help every hungry kid on earth, but you could sponsor one child through compassion or an organization likes it that helps children. You, You can do something, we can all do something. If we just start where we are and we have a mindset of love to say, Lord, just let, let my own selfishness get out of the way and show me opportunities all around me, in my neighborhood, in my office, in my city, right where I am to be able to help. I love this quote from Mother Teresa. She says, it's not about how much you do, but about how much love you put into what you do that counts. And if we're allowing the Lord to just fill us with his love, and we're, we're reminded daily of what Jesus has done for us, then I think there's gonna be a natural motivation to look around and say, how can I share this love with other people? And, and, and love, as the Bible talks about, it isn't just kind of this like, you know, mushy Hallmark card, you know, hugging on people all the time kind of love. It, it's, it can be affectionate, sure, but love is really rooted in action and commitment to other people. It's like, what can I do to serve them? What can I do to help meet a real need in their life without asking anything in return? What can I do to help somebody who's probably in no position to repay me? 
Because when I help somebody who can repay me, that's not really love. That's just networking. And God's called me to something more. He's called me to do good for those who can't do anything to repay me. And not just so that it makes me look good. You know, I don't think we need to like post selfies every time we're serving. The Bible says, you know, it's cool to be discreet. They don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And God who sees what you do in secret, he'll, he'll, he's the one who's going to reward you. So don't do it just for your reputation. Serve out of a heart full of gratitude to what God has done for you and a true desire to want to help other people. And God will always reward that. Here's kind of a real life example, modern day, of what kind of the Good Samaritan story can be. And it happened to my dad. My dad was essentially the the wounded person who needed help. So last month, my dad was working as a consultant in a factory in Texarkana, which is a, a town on the border of Texas and Arkansas. And at the time, my family was in Georgia. Dad and the rest of my family, they're from Kentucky. So the family was in Kentucky. So dad was a thousand miles away from anybody who knew him. He's in this factory where he's not really an employee, he's an outsider. And so the employees of the factory probably don't look at him as he's one of us. No, he's from the outside and he's here and he's, whatever he's gonna do is probably just gonna make more work for us. I mean, I don't, I'm not thrilled this guy's here at all, frankly. And so in the midst of working there, dad has what he thinks is a heart attack and is rushed to the hospital. It turns out to be something called a pulmonary embolism, a blood clot that had broken off from what was discovered to be a cancerous tumor, which he's also gotten under control since then. But that blood clot has um, made its way to the heart and it nearly killed him. So that first day he was in the hospital, they weren't sure he was gonna live and none of us could get to him that first day. So he spent that day in the hospital uh, in, in critical condition with nobody that he knew within a thousand miles away. So that night after dad had kinda like come, th- come through the initial medicine they gave him, he's in ICU, He's got his, his phone there in his room. He's been making calls. We've been calling and checking on him. He gets a phone call from somebody he doesn't know. And dad described him as this real friendly, real country guy. Dad picks up the phone and, and uh, dad said, hello, real weak in his voice. And this guy said, hey, is this Brad Willis? He said, yes. He said, hey, you don't really know me, but this is Joe. I worked down at that factory where you were working. And we met one time, but you wouldn't probably remember me. But anyway, I heard you had a heart attack real sorry. My wife and I have been praying for you. And after dinner, I was sitting and thinking, I said, that feller is laying in the hospital and he don't know a soul. He don't know a soul in this whole town. He's up there all by himself. I got to thinking, well, man, I bet somebody should reach out to him. And then I felt like God was saying, hey, Joe, you're somebody. And uh, I said, well, I guess I am. I guess I should do something. So that's just a Christian thing to do. So I've been calling around. I didn't know what hospital you were at. So I called all the hospitals and you weren't at any of those because you're at this one. And so uh, I found you. And anyway, I just called to say, like, I want to do something to help. So what do you need? And dad's like, oh, I don't need anything. He said, you're laying half dead in a hospital bed. You clearly need something. So I'm going to do something. So what do you need? Dad's like, oh, I don't know. He said, well, my computer's at, at, the, at, the, at the office and it's in the break room. And, um, and when you go in tomorrow, if you could just go in the break room and get that computer and like, put it off to the side somewhere. And then whenever I'm, I get out of here, I'll come get it. Joe said, I'll take care of it. So then an hour later, dad gets another call. Hey, it's Joe. I'm at the hospital with your computer and uh, I went to the work to get it and, and I'm sending it up. They won't let me come and see you because of the COVID thing, but I'm sending it up. And I got these car keys that were on top of it. So I figured you want those too. 
Dad said, oh, the car keys. Yeah, he said, I got a rental car. Joe said, rental car? So you probably got to take that back somewhere. Dad said, yeah, I'll take that back when I'm out. He said, nope, I'm taking it back. He said, no, I can't have you do that. Joe said, I'm the one with the keys. I'm doing it. He said, okay, all right. He said, what's the car look like? Dad said, it's like a silver Honda. And he said, where's it go? Goes to the airport. So Joe drives back to work, finds a car in the big factory parking lot, drives the car to the airport, takes a taxi from the airport back to the uh, uh, factory, gets his car. Then he drives to the hospital again. And he said, you left some stuff in the rental car and I figured you'd want this stuff. So I put all of it in a sack for you and, uh, and I'm sending it up to your room. And if you need anything else, here's my phone number and my wife and I will be praying for you and we hope you get better. That's it. Dad couldn't pick Joe out of a police lineup. No idea who, what he looks like or if he'll ever see him again. And that's what being a good neighbor looks like. On this side of heaven, you'll probably never even see him to be able to thank him. That's, that's what Jesus is talking about. Imagine a world where we all thought like Joe, sitting around and just thinking, you know what, I could do something. I could do something for that guy. It was the only guy out of a factory of a thousand people that called the check. And it was a guy that dad didn't even really know. But that kindness, that single act of kindness was such an encouragement to him. And such an encouragement to me when I got there the next day to just hear that story. I think, man, I want to be more like that. In fact, that, that single action is part of what prompted me to want to preach this sermon today when Pastor Marty was like, well, just preach about whatever you want. And I was like, well, I, just, I think of the Good Samaritan story in a different way after Joe. And I just, I just want to talk about that. It's the ripple effect of when, when kindness is done, when we put love out in, there in the world in Jesus' name you know, it changes lives in ways that we can't even possibly imagine. And all God calls us to do is be faithful. What, what Joe did, it required no actual skill. It just required thoughtfulness and time. I think we overcomplicate sometimes what it means to be a, an obedient follower of Jesus that changes people's lives. Or we think, oh, well, I can't do this, or I can't sing songs, or I can't. And it's like, no, we, we can all serve. And in doing that, we can change lives. So quickly, let me run through a few principles of what serving is and why we're called to do it and how it can look in a real life way. So number one, remember that serving others is both a privilege, but it's also a God-given command. Jesus doesn't just say it's a good idea to serve others. He's saying, no, I'm, I'm, I'm commanding, I'm telling you, if you are followers of mine, then part of putting your faith in action is, is to serve. And it's not, the ser- it's not the work that ever saves you. You don't earn your way to heaven by getting a bunch of gold stars by your name. You only get to heaven because of what Jesus has done for us. It's a completed work he did on the cross. We put our faith in him and faith in him, he's the one that saves us. It's a grace. However, that kind of faith should always motivate us to serve and to obedience. A saving faith will be rooted in some action as well. Jesus tells this story, Matthew chapter 25, talking about the the final judgment. The king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you? Hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink or a stranger 
and, and show you hospitality or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters, you were actually doing it for me. It's a powerful image. And, and that's not really the whole story because there was another group of people, that, the story goes on, that, that had not served, had not been good neighbors. And Jesus actually condemns those people and says, I was naked and, and you didn't, you didn't care. You didn't give me anything. I was sick and in prison. You didn't care. You just passed by on the other side of the road. You weren't there for me when I was hungry and when I needed you. And they say, when did we ever see you hungry or sick or in prison? He said, whatever you did not do for the least of these brothers and sisters, you were actually rejecting me. We're called to serve. It is, it is putting our faith in action in a sermon more powerful that can ever be spoken with any words when we're living out our faith by rolling up our sleeves and just helping other people the way Jesus called us to. I love this quote from Martin Luther King who said, not everyone can be famous, but everyone can be great because everyone can serve. Next principle is this, realize that your comfort is often the greatest threat to your calling. We live in a world that kind of teaches us to worship our comfort. Every commercial that we see, everything we're driven to do, it's kind of this, it's, it's, intoxicating us and hypnotizing us with this message that says, you need more stuff, you need more comfort, you need to think about you, you, you. And you have to take care of yourself, clearly, and comfort itself is not a sin, but when comfort becomes our life's ambition and our mindset, then we've really missed the point. And I think it's, it's kind of the biggest false god of our day, and by false god, I just mean Whatever that thing is that most motivates you when you wake up in the morning, that's your God, whether it's, it's money or comfort or Jesus. Like what's motivating you to get out of bed and to do what you do that day? And, and in the wrong place, a good thing can become an idol. Comfort can become an idol. And we've gotta realize that what God calls us to is often outside of our comfort zone. That doesn't mean that you can't have comfort along the way. And that doesn't mean you won't have a fulfilling life. It's actually... It's counterintuitive maybe, but the most joyful people I know, the happiest people I know, they're the ones that understand this and have stepped out of their comfort zone and are living the adventure that God has for them. And the most miserable people I know are so focused on their own comfort, but because they're so focused on themselves, it's never enough. It's never enough. And they always need more and they're never happy. And so when God calls you to serve, it's not to make you miserable, it's actually going to make you a more joyful person. He wants only good things for us. And Jesus set the way in his own life. He gave his mission statement in Matthew chapter 20 for his life. He said, even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus left the comforts of heaven. He came on a rescue mission to earth and he gave up all of his rights to live in eternal comfort, to come to our broken world and to serve other people and then to give his life on the cross. And he says, you know, Follow me and be willing to do the same. I read a book recently by a retired Navy SEAL and this ultra endurance athlete um, named David Goggins, who's you know, one of the fittest people on the planet, but at one time he was, he was obese and really out of shape, but he decided that he was gonna live a life of discipline, changed everything. And one thing he put in his book is this, he said, you're in danger of living a life so comfortable and soft that you will die without ever realizing your true potential. 
And Goggins is a neat guy. Like, he's overcome a lot. He grew up where he had to overcome racism. He had to overcome poverty. He had to overcome abuse. And just a, it's, it's a harrowing story of everything he had to endure and then what he's achieved in his life. Reading his book, I don't think that he's a follower of Jesus. And I think the component that's missing from his story is that he, he understands physical toughness and mental toughness. But there's a spiritual component of this that's really the most important part. That without that spiritual component, without saying, Jesus, I don't want to just be tough physically or mentally, but I want you through your Holy Spirit to make me the person I'm meant to be from the inside out. I want my heart to be both tough and tender at the same time, the way yours is, Jesus. I I want my mind to be motivated by the things that motivate you. I want my identity to be rooted not in anything that I accomplish, but in what you've accomplished and in my, my hope that is in you and the fact that you've adopted me into your family. Jesus, I want you to to work through my life. My life belongs to you. And when we get to that place, that's really the moment that we begin to start truly living. And we have to step out of our comfort zone to do that. And the final, final principle is this. Prioritize God's value system ahead of all worldly ambitions. The world is gonna try to entice you with a bunch of stuff to chase after that without God, it's all pretty empty. Jesus says, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. Put God first, and you'll you'll always have what you need. He's saying, trust me, trust me. That's a big part of faith is just trusting God to to be true to his promises and trusting God by, by putting our faith completely in him. Trusting him by wanting him more than we want anything this world can offer. As a, as a final story, uh, uh, kind of a personal hero of mine from the last several hundred years is a, a guy named William Wilberforce, who in Great Britain um, was an activist and then eventually also a politician who almost single-handedly led the abolition and the eradication of slavery in Great Britain and all of Europe. And he was motivated to do that um, by his faith in Christ, by reading the Bible and just saying, I, I can't live and experience any freedom myself when I have neighbors and brothers and sisters who are in bondage, and none of us who call ourselves followers of Christ should be willing to live in a world where this can exist. And so he endured you know, death threats and a, and a very uncomfortable life for a long time on the front line of that fight, but ultimately his, his, his courage was, was the catalyst that God used to, to bring about real change. And then Wilberforce's example became a a roadmap that many activists and leaders and politicians in the United States would use decades later to to end the scourge of slavery um, in our nation as well. But there was a time when Wilberforce thought about kind of getting out of the fight and just taking a a cush job in the prime minister's cabinet where he'd have a great salary and he'd have a, a lot of prestige and an easy job in an easy life, and he said, well, let me pray about this. And he went, he went away to pray and just spend some time with God. Lord, what do you want to do with my life? Because my life's in your hands, and I don't want anything except what you have for me. And he wrote this in his journal, and you can tell by the words he uses that he's way smarter than me. And these words just beg to be read in at least an attempt at a British accent, so I'm gonna try to do this, let's see. Wilberforce writes, blessed be God for this day of rest and religious occupation, wherein earthly things assume their true size and comparative insignificance, ambition is stunted, 
and I hope my affections in some degree rise to things above. And then he goes on from there. But, but what he's really saying in kind of regular everyday language is when I get away with God and my prayer for this time away with God is that all the stuff of this world, I'll see it as small as it really is. That I won't look at the prime minister of Great Britain as if he's anywhere on the same plane as God. I won't look at anything that this world has to offer as being anything close to what God wants to do in and through my life. And I don't want my own earthly ambition, my ambition to build a name for myself to somehow get in the way of what Jesus wants to do through my one and only life. And after that time away with the Lord, he came back with the confidence to look at the prime minister in the face and say, sir, thank you for the job, but I believe God has a higher calling on my life than anything you can offer me in your cabinet. And history was changed as a result of, of his living out his faith. And all of us are called to live out our faith in ways that will require courage and some self-sacrifice. But when we, when we join God in that adventure that he has for us, man, once you've tasted that, you'll never want anything less. And a God-sized adventure doesn't mean he's always gonna send you around the world. Sometimes he will. But oftentimes he's gonna call you to stay right where you are and live out the adventure of loving the people in your home, your family, in a more wholehearted way. To go into that same cubicle you go to through the week and, and to live there as a light in the darkness and to embody joy and strength and peace and integrity in a way that, that points other people to God. Right here in this community, it, it doesn't have to be going to some foreign land, even though God might call you to that, and if he does, you should go. But he wants you to leave this place today and treat the server at the restaurant differently than you might have, had it not been for the example of Jesus. Everybody we encounter is an eternal soul created in the image of God, and let's treat them as such, knowing they're our brothers, our sisters, and our neighbors. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. Thank you for inviting us into your family. Jesus, thank you for what you've accomplished for us on the cross so we could have hope and eternity with you as part of your family. Help us live our lives in such a way that it points other people to the hope that can only be found in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like to help support the ministries of Stevens Creek Church, please go to stevenscreekchurch.com and click the Give button. See you next time.